Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Alessandro Navoa on the biggest role of his career yet in the many saints of Newark. Hey guys, Josh Horowitz here with another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused, and very excited to say that this begins two weeks of coverage of a film that I really dug. I'm going to talk about it a lot these next two shows. Indulge me, if you will, The Many Saints of Newark. I believe the subtitle is A Soprano Story. And yes, as that subtitle alludes to, this is connected to The Sopranos, the classic, perhaps greatest television show of all time, if not the greatest, certainly up there. Um, this week, Alessandro Novello, who is indeed the lead of this film playing Dick, uh, Dickie Moltisanti, um, and next week, the creator of The Sopranos, David Chase. We'll get to that later on, but uh, that's a special one as well. But as for Alessandro, if you know, you know, film and TV and theater in particular in New York, you probably know Alessandro's work. He's, I wouldn't say he, I don't know, he's kind of been a character actor and a leading man over the years. And unlike some of his contemporaries, as he talks about, like the Billy Crudups and the Ethan Hawks, he kind of hasn't had that role that really clicked, that right leading role that, that resonated. And here we are now. He's, I think he's in his late 40s, and he's gotten the role that he's sought after all these years. So really thrilling to see someone like Alessandro get a chance, uh, and only in this kind of circumstance, frankly, when David Chase wields so much power, um, you know, you could see this going a different way where, like, a studio would insist on a bigger, quote-unquote, name. Um, but David Chase is the name. Sopranos is the name when it comes to the many saints of Newark. So uh, exciting to see Alessandro in this, and he's fantastic in the film. Uh, this is a fun conversation. I've always been a fan of Alessandro's work. He's uh, part of uh, one of those cool Brooklyn couples that you got to admire as a fellow New Yorker, him and uh, Emily Mortimer, keeping it real here in New York. Um, and, you know, we talk a bit about this unusual trajectory for him and getting this role when he did and what it means to him now and watching his contemporaries succeed and get opportunities where maybe he didn't. People like Billy Crudup and Ethan Hawke and Jude Law, who we knew back in the day. Um, so he's got a good perspective about it. And um, again, exciting just to see him make the most of a really fun opportunity, a cool opportunity. And I should say, this isn't a spoilery conversation. Many Saints of Newark doesn't open till October 1st. It's out in theaters and on HBO Max. So don't worry, nothing spoilery at all in this in this chat. And if you're also, if you're not even a big Sopranos fan, haven't watched the show too much or at all, um, this movie works, as I say to Alessandro and David on next week's show. I think it works for the casual fan, and I think it works for the diehard as well. So that is a badge of honor for the many saints of Newark. Um, there's also, I should say, an amazing digression in this episode. Uh, did you know, for instance, that Alessandro's film debut came in the great, or I don't know if it was his film debut or maybe it was his second film, uh, Face Off. Face Off was one of his early films. He played, of course, Pollux Troy, Nick Cage's brother. <laughs> A performance that uh, is indelible. He took some big, big swings with that performance, and he goes into where it came from, what was on the page, and what wasn't. Uh, him and Nick's uh, relationship, how the director John Woo reacted to it. It's a fun, I don't even know, five, maybe ten minutes of the conversation talking all things face-off that I just positively delighted in. Uh, and of course we talk comfort movies as well, and he picks a great one, a Adam McKay classic. Um, so that's today's episode of Happy Sad Confused, Alessandro Nivola on his life, career, and the many saints of Newark. Other things to mention, let's see, we still have a new, a relatively new game night up for you guys on the Patreon page with Justin and Christian Long and Joe Manganiello. If you haven't checked that out, please do. Of course, over on the Patreon page, as always, we've got video versions of the podcast. This conversation is in video form over there. You can check out the Jessica Chastain chat in video form and a ton of other stuff. Remember, if you subscribe to the Patreon, you get all the video content, not just the new stuff, but all the stuff going way back, all the game nights, all the video versions of Happy, Sad, Confused. So check it out if you're so inclined. Patreon.com slash Happy, Sad, Confused. Other things coming up down the pipe. What can I say? Venom. Venom, Let There Be Carnage is coming to theaters very soon. Chatted with the... What's the adjective to, to use on Tom Hardy? I don't know. 
the <laughs> inscrutable, the unusual, the always charming and vaguely scary. No, he's not scary. He's a sweetie. Uh, chatted with Tom Hardy and his director, Andy Serkis, for MTV. That conversation is coming up. That was a lot of fun to do. And, and some Dune stuff. I know we've been talking Dune for like years, it feels like, on the podcast. But um, I did mention on Twitter, so I'll mention it here. I have taped a podcast conversation with Denis Villeneuve. He, uh, of course, one of the great filmmakers working today. And thrilled that Denis came back on the podcast. If you don't know, he was actually on before for Blade Runner 2049 a few years back. So if you want to dig into the archives for that one, check it out. But uh, yeah, in a few weeks' time, a deep dive with Denis Villeneuve on Dune. So stick around for that one. Okay, let's get to the main event, uh, part one of a two-week extravaganza about all things The Many Saints of Newark. Next week, it's David Chase. But today, the day belongs to Mr. Alessandro Nivola. Enjoy. Uh, Alessandro, welcome to Happy, Sad, Confused. I'm happy to say in the seven years on this podcast, this is the first Alessandro on the pod ever. So you've broken new ground already. Welcome. Yeah, there are a lot of firsts where Alessandro is concerned. I haven't, uh, I don't encounter them often in this country, sometimes back in the, in the motherland. Right. <laughs> well, you know, if there's not, you know, if the Sopranos film, The Many Saints of Newark, doesn't call for an Alessandro, something is wrong. If you can't get a gig in this one, then you're doing something wrong. Exactly. I mean, I've said this before in, in interviews, but it's really true that I, you know, my name has been such a kind of source of confusion. It's been such an obstacle in the whole, my whole career up until this point. And then uh, finally, this like, you're cashing in, cashing like, the career chips, yeah. defining role. Finally, uh, you know, I'm sure I only got because of that, or, you know, it's certainly, <laughs> certainly didn't uh, sl slow the process down. <laughs> I don't think it may, I don't think it got you the role with Mr. David Chase, but yes, as you say, probably didn't hurt. Um, I really think that, he, did, he did really care. I mean, he does really care about the Italian thing. Like he, uh, yeah. I mean, I think he, he, he makes no bones about it. Like it was important to him. Yeah. Well, so I, I, let's, let's start there because I mean, you, you talk about this as a career defining role it's, and it's interesting. Look, you, you've been around the block once or twice. I followed your career. I'm a big fan of your work, man. But um, it's unusual to, for you to be in, for any actor to be in this circumstance where you are, because this is arguably the most important, most high profile role in your career. And as you well know, this by the Hollywood playbook is not usually how it works. Yeah. Um, had you, <laughs> I mean, give me a sense of sort of like where, like, were you still, I mean, I'm sure over the years you've chased different things and you've been satisfied to different degrees. Where were you at? when this came around in terms of like satisfaction level, what you were going after, what your, what dreams were still left or what dreams you'd let go of. Where yeah. Are you at? Um, well, uh, okay. I guess on the one hand, I felt like, um, uh, you know, I was very proud of the kind of range of roles that I, that I'd played and, uh, the variety of everything and and um, that, uh, you know, I, I was aware that I'd kind of, you know, been appreciated over the years for kind of, uh, you know, bringing something to movies where I was playing supporting roles and that were, you know, that was kind of, that was enhancing the movie somehow in unexpected ways and that the, that the roles were sometimes, you know, on the page not as colorful or interesting as they ended up in my hands once I was done with them. Um, but I also felt like it was still a grind, you know, it was just a grind in the, in the sense that I, uh, you know, I, I just couldn't really be, you know, I couldn't finance independent movies right. in the lead roles and, uh, you know, studios, were reluctant to hire me in in lead roles just because I, I wasn't going to sell the film to their audiences. And so, you know, I've been relatively anonymous uh, apart from like in the 
you know, people in the know within the industry. And, right. and uh, obviously there were a lot of directors who wanted to hire me and, uh, you know, came up against opposition from, you know, financiers and executives and stuff like that. And so, yeah, so like, you know, I, I it, it's, I, I was, um, it's been, it, from that point of view, uh, it's been, it's been hard. I've spent most of my career making more out of roles than, than right. what was there. Uh, on the other hand, um, I, I've felt over the past eight years or so, like um, a, a kind of very like quiet, slow, steady progression towards this moment. Like I, I, getting this, this role wasn't completely uh, out of nowhere. Um, right like it, there there had been a certain kind of like quietly building momentum and really it started from eight years ago or so I, I made a decision to start taking roles based almost exclusively on on the director and so I started really doing smaller roles in in movies that were more high profile because they were with kind of auteurish directors who were important that everybody was you know paying attention to and wanted to see what their next project was, which was inevitably something kind of unusual and special and, and uh, attention grabbing. And, and so um, I, I, I started having a lot more people see my work, even though it was in smaller roles. I mean, I'd done like, I, I counted like 12 movies that I'd made that I was the lead role in that never got released, uh, you know, over the, <laughs> over <laughs> over the course of my career and these weren't like necessarily you know totally invisible things they were like me starring opposite chris walken me starring i mean like you know big uh potentially uh you know i shouldn't say big movies but like things that were not like shot on your handy cam uh in your backyard they were <laughs> and so, so does, that, uh, does that does that fuck with your confidence over the years i mean you know you're a quality actor but at the end but then you're also like facing this reality of like wait what am i doing wrong <laughs> like or was it like do you have enough n knowledge of the industry and kind of presence of mind to know like look it's out of my hand like this is just one of those things i, I have plenty of friends that for whatever reason it, it it never clicked for and i just have to keep doing my thing and let the chips fall where they may or, or what was your um, attitude well uh, you know i felt uh, so you know with a lot of these kinds of movies that would come out like I, i'd get like great reviews you know and yeah and so I was being told, you know, by critics and stuff like that I'd given some great performance in this thing. It was just nobody was seeing any of it. Right, right. And so I wasn't thinking like, oh, like uh, my process is not yielding like the performances that I want. Like it was just like I was in the wrong movies and or, you know, or or just having bad luck with right. the, the, the movies and the way that they were you know released or or whatever and um but really i i felt like it was about you know trying to to come to realize that movies really belong to directors and that uh a movie is only as good as the as its director and um once i started just kind of saying like i want to work with these people like just find me anything in movies with you know this list of like 40 directors and um and they started doing that. And, you know, it started around the time I did like, I don't know, maybe it was Ginger and Rosa with Sally Potter. Like if you yep. look from that film until totally. now, uh, the, like the best directors I've worked with are like in that, from that point to now. I mean, every movie was somebody, David O. Russell, J.C. Chander, uh, Nick Nick Reffin, yeah, uh, yep. yep. uh, yep. I mean, like it just every single time it was somebody. I mean, Ava, I did like a one scene part in that movie. Um, yeah, but like the aggregate of it just started to sort of snowball a little bit. Like people just became more and more aware that I was just again and again like popping up in these movies and and doing something uh, surprising. And and um, so by the time this thing came along, it was. I felt like something something was going to happen, but you know the clock was ticking too because uh, this isn't the time that you you know of a career as you said that you normally kind of 
uh, you know, have, have your breakthrough or your career defining role or whatever, however you want to describe it. But, uh, and, and, and in fact, this movie to me is just like a total anomaly in the sense that, um, movie studios don't make these kinds of movies anymore. These are like, uh, you know, classic crime dramas that were, you know, the studio fair from the seventies and eighties, uh, before all the, you know, superhero movies and everything. And, and they just like a, a mid budget, this was like 50, $60 million. Like that budget is just not a budget that exists yes. at the studios, um, for a drama. And, uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I kind of like to think of the movie as a Trojan horse that was, uh, you know, wrapped up in this uh, IP of the of the television series that was had such a following and was only allowed to be made because of that. And and it's also because of that, that uh, David was allowed to cast whoever he wanted in the roles because we weren't selling it like the show. The show was selling the, the movie. So um the likelihood of this role in this kind of movie uh, at this time really was you know very very kind of needle in a haystack um so uh yeah there's no question that when it came along i was uh, aware that like you know finally something had really gone right uh for me and and i'd had some you know it was a, a great stroke of luck you know what was it a process in terms of like from the first time you met with David and or Alan Taylor um, to get the role? I mean, were you stealing yourself for like as much as they're saying, we love you, you're great. We're talking to the studio is a part of your brain like, oh, like, great. When does Ryan Gosling take my role? <laughs> the last second, you know? Yeah, yeah, I was, you know, I gave a killer audition and um, I really prepared for it. You know, I. I don't do a lot of auditions in a year, but um, but I, I do, you know, once every three months, it's it's kind of been, and I, I really like treat them like, uh, I treat them as if I had the role and I was researching the role and starting to, to work on it. Um, and, and because just psychologically that way, I, you know, I can just see it for its own value and just like enjoy that process of, Right. of discovering a character and picking apart a scene and you know doing all the things that I do when I'm actually preparing to shoot so um I really you know I spent a few weeks on this and uh, I was given like the five biggest scenes in the movie to to tape and and I didn't know by the way I hadn't even David is so you know tight-lipped about the script and everything and he's so paranoid about it getting out that I didn't I hadn't even read the whole thing so I didn't even know it was the lead role in the movie I, I just knew there were like five great scenes and and um so I I prepared them and I I I taped it and you just know like sometimes you know if it's good or not I, I just knew it was really good and I sent yeah. it off and I was expecting to hear like something positive about it but I but yeah, I didn't know. And I, I remember Ethan Hawke is my buddy and he lives down the road right here, just a few townhouses down on my street here in Brooklyn. And we have breakfast all the time. Our kids are in the same school. And so we, we meet up almost daily. If we're like in the same, if we're both here. And I was like, Hey, can I, I gotta show you this thing, you know? And, and, and uh, so I took him back to the house and I showed him the audition and, and he was like, damn, that's, that's really good you're not going to get it. He was tempering your, your expectations. He wanted it to be a nice surprise. He was like, he was like, Oh, he so deserved to get this. You're not going to get it. <laughs> and um, so I, uh, yeah, I, of course there was always that, that, yep. uh, expectation but i definitely felt like i had like really sort of you know done something special with the scenes and i i I'd, I'd, I'd sent them off and i heard immediately that they were interested and then and then uh when i went and met them i had to go i went and had lunch with with uh david and alan taylor uh at some restaurant in tribeca and um 
you know, my next door neighbor who's right across the wall behind this screen I'm pointing at is Tim Van Patten, who directed oh, yeah. half the Sopranos and all of Boardwalk and everything. Oh, else. this is all meant to be. Come on. And, uh, and yeah. he, um, so once I told him that, like, I had done this audition and they were interested in everything, he said, um, and I told him I was going to meet David and everything. He kind of like prepped me about the whole thing and said, listen, like, don't expect David to laugh at your jokes. Um, you know, he's totally inscrutable. You're not going to like, you're not going to get anything out of him. It doesn't mean he doesn't like you. Just don't expect any of that. And so I went in there just thinking like, oh my God, this is just going to be like a kind of painful lunch that I just have to sort of suffer through and hopefully not put my foot in my mouth. And, and instead he, he was just like really animated and, you know, uh, we, we just really, yeah, immediately had a kind of connection and he was so curious about my you know, father's side of my family, the immigrant side and, and uh, you know, what his experience had been and everything. And there was, and yeah, yeah this is, we're back full circle. This was, you know, back to, to, to my name value here. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you had that experience with David. I mean, uh, I had him on the podcast. I'm not sure if I'm going to run you or him first, but okay. he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a tough, he's a tough nut to crack for, for yeah. many. I feel like he's, he doesn't suffer fools clearly. No. Um, I, I mean, I knew what I was getting into. I've seen many interviews with him, but like, man, like um, I can only imagine, like, obviously this is his baby and he doesn't want to exploit this IP as it were. And as you say, this is kind of a Trojan horse. Like this is like, I, I'll be honest. Like I hadn't watched the Sopranos for many years. I didn't remember all the intricacies of it, but like I ended up falling in love with this movie just on its own terms. And like remembering some references, but then wanting to go back to the show and then having it enrich the experience all the more. So yeah, yeah. as I said to him, I, I, I think you guys really truly knocked it out of the park. And, and I think it's going to work for audiences Wow, oh, that's that's great to hear. I mean, I'm only just now starting to talk to people who've seen it because, um, you know, they they really hadn't screened it a lot for for many months. I think partly because David really felt like, you know, he was up against the the fact of of you know the the, the show being the provenance of the movie is like a double edged sword because on the yes. one hand it's made the movie possible and on the other hand it makes it that much harder to kind of uh, get people to experience the movie on its own terms as a piece of cinema and, and not as another episode of the show. And so um, I think, you know, then with the HBO Max, you know, day and date release with, with the theatrical, um, David really like his heart sank because he feels like our movie has a handicap of like, needing to overcome the you know the association with hbo and the and the you know television uh incarnation of the series so um so yeah i think that's been something that he's been very like vocal about and, and yeah he makes no bones about it he's just like this is bullshit <laughs> I, I, I mean i like a refreshing filmmaker that's that says what he thinks i mean look again it's his baby and he should feel protective of it and it is it's a it's a tough nut to crack in this this environment but yeah. it's as a cinephile as somebody that appreciates exactly what you're talking about that kind of mid-range drama you don't see it much and like I, I hope it's rewarded. I hope people give it a shot at the box office as well as at home. Um, yeah, I mean, the box office thing is just like, yeah, who, so confusing yeah. at this point. Because nobody knows. Uh, yeah. Especially with this movie, probably more than any, because like people, as, as, he, as he's pointed out, like people just associate the Sopranos with their television. So right. like, I don't think people think of this movie as something that needs to be seen in a cinema. And when in fact, in my opinion, and maybe I'm biased, but I don't think so. Like I have a pretty clear eye about the stuff I'm in, but forget about the, the quality of the storytelling or the acting or any of the other sort of film craft parts of it. Like the cinematography, I really love in the movie. Like I really think yeah. it's so much more cinematic than the show was. And that's not to like, you know, put the show down at all. The show is an absolute, you know, genius piece of television and it's changed the course of TV and, and the acting and it's outrageous and it's just brilliantly written. I, but but just purely like as far as the way it's shot, like the way it captures the period feels very like gritty and authentic, but not like glamorized, but it's 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 also beautiful in a kind of subtle way. And 
Um, so to me, like the experience of watching it on a big screen is, is so much better than seeing it on television. But I, I, again, like, I don't think that that's the, that's the perception of, of the movie, given its association with the show. So, Well, all we can do is talk it up. And I will say, as I said to David, I think I've probably seen like maybe nine or 10 movies on the big screen in the last year and a half, in the last couple months. And I've seen yours twice on the big screen. So hopefully that tells you all you need to know. The second time were you forced? <laughs> no, no, no. I wanted a refresher for both you and it was like, It was like the scene in Clockwork Orange. They had like your eyelids, like held open. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you were strapped down into a chair. Yeah, yeah, it was a saw device I was stuck in. Um, let's talk, if we could, a little bit about your background, if you'll indulge me. Um, when did you, how did you catch the disease of acting? Who, who inflicted it upon you? Was it in your blood from the beginning? Where did you kind of fall in love? Uh, I, was in, I was in Peter Pan in, in a school play and, and um, I just got, you know, I just got really fired up about it. That was third grade, I guess. And, and I told my mom I wanted to, go to acting classes and so she started she found like summer programs for me to go to and and then from there it was really like a very uh old-fashioned road uh you know and again it was kind of like you know slow and steady which I guess it just carried on right to this point um I I started out doing you know summer drama schools and things and then and then uh, interning at summer theaters and like sweeping floors and punching meal tickets and doing like splicing sound tape and for plays. And, and then um, I, I started getting little roles in, in like uh, professional summer theater and up in Connecticut, there was this place called the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center where they developed all of August Wilson's plays and and uh you know john patrick shanley's plays john guare's plays um back in the 80s and i was uh i was there initially just as a kind of intern who was like helping out and and then some part my like my fourth or fifth summer there i was still in high school and some part came up uh for a teenager and they they asked me to do it and then that was like my first professional role and then and then uh, I went to Yale and while I was at Yale, I got a, I got an agent uh, and whoops, something just happened to my thing there. Um, and I, I started uh, auditioning for, you know, summer theater. And I then like over the time that I was at Yale, I did like five regional theater plays around the country, Chekhov and, and uh, Athel Fugard and, um, you know, just like, uh, you know, a bunch of things, you know, Master Harold and the Boys, I think, was like my first big lead role in a in any professional capacity. And it was a it was out in Seattle at the Intamon Theater in Seattle. And that was I think I was a junior at Yale. And it was, a, you know, one of the most thrilling moments of my life. Um, and I was maybe 16 or something, uh, 17. And then, um, and then a year out of Yale, I was cast, I had, I was living in New York, I hadn't ever worked in New York City. And my first role in New York was a starring role on Broadway, opposite Helen Mirren in uh, a Turgenev play called A Month in the Country. And I had never done a film at this point. I was just, uh, you know, my whole career was geared towards the theater. And, but that sort of like changed everything. And just in terms of like, my awareness of Hollywood and stuff, because there were all these young actors who were also uh, on Broadway at that time. There was Billy Crudup, Jude Law, Damian Lewis, Ray Fiennes, um, uh, Rufus Sewell, um, yeah. Robert Sean Leonard, like all these people. And we were all kind of hanging out together at night uh, after these shows. And we would do our plays and meet up and have these kind of like, you know, really uh, long nights. <laughs> were, they, then, were, they uh, like, were they highfalutin dreams? Like, were you guys snobbish about like Hollywood at the time? Like, what was the attitude? What was the collective kind of like, what was the dream collectively or for yourself at that time in your life? Well, I, I got really close friends. I got to be really close friends with Jude Law in particular. And 
he and I were just kind of like for a few months when we were doing these plays, uh, we were just hanging out together the whole time. And I just remember like he was at CAA and he, he was just like very glamorous guy at that time. You know, he had this like bleach blonde hair and he was all kind of like a wild man and wore kind of like crazy fashioning clothes that were sort of, you know, like uh, definitely eye catching. And like, he was just like, you know, whether or not he was famous, he was going to be famous. Like you walk down the street and you're like, who's that guy? You know, like, and, uh, and I was kind of like fascinated by him. And, uh, you know, we just like, we really got along, but I started noticing like all these film strip. I remember going over to his apartment and there was like a stack of red film scripts with this red CAA, uh, covers on them and they were obviously just like I guess film offers he'd been getting because like wow. he was a star somehow already you know and uh and uh and so like the second his show closed off he went and he's just started making movies and then that's kind of started happening with a lot of the other guys I mean I you know Billy same thing. I can't remember what he went off to do, but like they one by one started their, their shows started closing and they started floating off, you know, <laughs> up towards the heavens. And, uh, and, uh, and I was kind of left there like grinding out my play every night. And like, um, you know, I didn't have any film offers and I, I you know, my, it just wasn't like, I, I just didn't have a sort of, uh, you know, and then, but but someone did come and see the show. Mindy Maring was this cast, great casting director, and and she uh, you know got excited about me being in uh, in face in John Woo's Face Off movie, and um, so that uh, came out of the play. It wasn't immediately after the play. It was like I don't know. It was maybe a year later or something, but she had seen the play and she'd remembered me and she brought me in to meet him. And so that's, you know, how that happened. And then after that first play in New York, I didn't do another play for eight years. Oh, wow. Um, well, that, well, well, we should talk about face off because like, I mean, that is one and like, you made such like an indelible impression as Pollux Troy. I mean, I was like refreshing. I'm not that I need refreshing. I've seen that movie so many times and what John Woo did with it and, and Nick and John Travolta, the whole, and Joan Allen, everybody's just amazing in it. Um, but I was uh, looking on YouTube. I was just curious, like to watch some scenes. And there's like literally like a sizzle reel. There's like just like somebody has comped all of the Pollux Troy lines, <laughs> all of your moments. I don't know if you've seen that. Those. That character, not me as an actor, but that character, like somehow got a sort of weird cult following going with it. Like I don't well, know. You're, he... Well, you're making choices. You're making big choices <laughs> with that character. I mean, like you could, you know, talk to me about like was that all on the page? I mean, like the pinky wave, the, just the, 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 there's just an affectation to him that is very striking and unique. Um, yeah, none of it was on the page. Uh, in fact, when I first met John Woo, the role was written like, just like mini me of, of uh, Nick's character. <laughs> it was like the right. same guy as Nick, just sort of like this sort of loser, less cool one, but who was... <laughs> still like you know supposed to be in like leather pants and you know like a kind of club guy you know who's just like trying to like be like his older brother or something I don't know but it was just so lame like I I knew from the start first of all I thought the script was just totally inane like I couldn't understand like I was like well, these guys are swapping faces this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard like this is never gonna work right and uh I was so wrong um, for a million <laughs> reasons. Like now, like forget about John Woo's style. I even think the script is brilliant and the whole concept is brilliant. And, um, but I, at the time I just thought it was so dumb. And then I, uh, the role just seemed like there was nothing interesting about it. It just seemed like a, a kind of carbon copy of Nick and I could never do Nick better than Nick. And so, um, I was, but you know, but he cast me just from, I think we just met. I don't think I read anything. I just like, I came and met him and I wore leather pants. Like I, <laughs> I wore leather pants to my John Woo meeting and that did the trick. Like he cast me, but then in the time that I was kind of preparing, I was just thinking I have got to completely 
rethink this thing because otherwise it's going to be just so forgettable. And and I'd been watching that Terry's Wygoff documentary about R. Crumb, the artist R. Crumb, which, uh, you know, I don't know how many people have seen this. Maybe it's an obscure thing, but it's a brilliant documentary about this psychedelic cartoon artist from the sort of Haight-Ashbury. And, and he uh, had, it, it was not just him, but two brothers, and they were all like really eccentric, fascinating characters. And um, I started fixating on the bro, his older brother, Charles, who sadly killed himself after the documentary was made. But he was this really weird guy who wrote these journals where the writing got like smaller and smaller and smaller until like you couldn't see it anymore <laughs> and uh and uh, i basically decided i was just going to do an impersonation of him and he had like a very spe specific voice uh, you know where he, you know he sort of talked like that and all this stuff you know like everything was in the back of his throat and i just sort of started like i was like i'm just gonna do that i'm just gonna be that guy and and then I want to dress like him. And I, I so I, I went to the costumers and I had them rethink the whole thing. And I, they got all my like, you know, wide whale corduroys and sweater vests and glasses and all that stuff. And my whole physicality, I was sort of imitating the Crumb brothers. And, and I had also shown it to Nick who just like, his like eyes lit up when oh, he saw yeah. the documentary. <laughs> and he was like, oh, Alex Chicago, I... Yeah, you're speaking like Cage's language. Very, what you're doing. <laughs> very dark. Uh, <laughs> you know, he was just like into it, and we started like getting together and doing like improvisations in his trailer. Um, uh, you know, based on the Crumb Brothers, and just like cracking ourselves up, just making up the most absurd shit, talking about like sex sandwiches, and like I mean, just free associating and we his assistant would write it all down and then we would send it to john woo and john woo just loved it like i couldn't believe it like the stuff we were coming up with was just so like random and he would watch it and he loved it i remember him saying like bringing us into the set one day and saying he was looking at our pages and he was like uh sex sandwich very funny <laughs> <laughs> and uh we were like Right. You know, that's amazing. <laughs> um, so I, it was like a just wildly creative yeah. experience. Nick, you know, it was my first movie, really. I mean, I had done a little tiny role by that time in Inventing the Abbots, and that right. was it. And then, and Nick, um, Nick was like so encouraging of me, and he was just like, yeah, you know, just you know, go, go, like do that, you know, and. And so I just felt totally emboldened by him and and John, like the, the you know, the rest of the movie was one of those movies is so big and there's so much going on that nobody's paying attention to what the acting like, you know, that's happening off in some kind of corner. And it's not until like, you know, the daily started coming back that people had realized like that I was doing this whacked out character before that they were just like, who's the guy with the yeah. boat shoes and the corduroys or whatever. Yeah. Why is that guy waving to John Travolta like this <laughs> in the corner? <laughs> but I, so I started getting people coming up to me on the set from the crew, you know, like the DP, I think. And I don't know, people in the, you know, in the department head saying like, Hey, I saw the dailies. Like, I like what you're doing there. You know what I mean? And I was like, I was like, all right, like, I'm good. I'm just going to keep doing this. And, That's amazing. Um, so, wow. yeah, that was, that was a, a very, um, a great first uh, first experience. We'll have to set aside another three hours for a, a, another podcast to talk more in detail because I feel like that's the tip of the iceberg of, of face-off <laughs> stories on, and Nick Cage stories, which I can always dine out on. Um, <laughs> um, one thing I want to get to before I run out of time with you, because I have been asking folks for about their comfort movies, especially in this last year when we need some comfort. Oh, yeah, yeah. You chose a, you chose a great one that shockingly has not come up yet. I don't know. I, I, this is a stupid question to even ask why this is a comfort movie, but tell me why for you, Step Brothers is an <laughs> integral comfort movie for you. Uh, I guess, well, it just, it's become a family thing. Uh, my brother and my son and I just all love it so much that we just, it, it's just like we quote it all day long to each other in text messages and like we send little pictures and we, 
we just repeat the same line to each other over and over again. And it's just like, we just like crack each other up, even like with the same lines that we've said to each other like a hundred times. And I don't know, man, it's just so brilliant. And, and like, I, I think maybe the best performance in the whole movie is Adam Scott. Um, you know, like Will Ferrell and, and John C. Riley are just such geniuses in uh, like every movie that they do and every, I mean, Will yeah. Ferrell is like, I, I think all of his movies are my comfort movies, but I, but, um, but Adam Scott is like the special sauce in the movie that just like puts it into the stratosphere. And from the minute he appears on screen, like singing, uh, you know, sweet child of mine or whatever um, with his family. And like, it's just, he's just like, he's on fire he he like had tapped into somebody that was just so brilliant and that character has been kind of recreated in other movies and other kind of incarnations so many times and it'll just never be as good as the way that he does it um just you know his, what's, what's fun and do you know do you, i don't know if you know adam at all i mean i've talked to him on this podcast and, and other yeah. times and he's talked about that film like being so out of his element and being like I am not equipped to do this and to see what yeah. came of it, even through the fear and feeling like you didn't belong is makes it all the remo more remarkable. Well, that's so funny. Like he just seems so completely there. I mean, I know that feeling like I just, you know, if, interestingly, like after this movie, the last two, last three things I've done have all been like very, you know, like real comic roles. And I, I've done comic roles at times in my careers, in my career, but usually in, in uh, more dramatic films and, Right. Uh, after doing the art of self-defense a few years ago, um, I love, started, by the way, fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that was like my first like out and out like comedy film, and and just you know with me and Jesse Eisenberg, and and I started getting offered like just comedy comedies for after that, and and so my role in David O. Russell's movie, and then. And then uh, the thing I did after that was like with all those guys, like, uh, you know, it was Allison Brie and Aubrey Plaza right. and Fred Armisen and Molly Shan and Tim Heidecker, Zach Woods, uh, you know, like a whole long list of like the sort of UCB. The all-stars. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's, it's amazing how separate the two worlds are. Like those guys all know each other and they've all worked together a million times. And yep. I now feel like I've worked with like everybody, but it turns out it's only in this like one side of the, of the movie business. And I was like dropped into their midst on, on this film. And uh, I, I felt like the way Adam's describing, like I felt like a total alien to the point where it was almost like they were like wanting to come and like, touch my hair <laughs> you know what I mean and see if I was real um and it was such a it was such a like just so fun and they I would just sit around like I I you know just like it was as if I was stoned when I wasn't stoned because right. like, my eyes were like slits and I, I was just like grinning like because people just the whole time were just being funny all the time and right and uh it's so unlike uh, uh all the film sets I've been on where you know I don't know, you know, people are sort of just sitting around like complaining or whatever. <laughs> 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 to be fair, some of those performers are very, I mean, like Aubrey Plaza, I mean, I've known Aubrey for a decade and I still don't even know if she's like giving me shit or being normal or what's coming out of her mouth and what oh, yeah. her brain's at. It's like- She's like a total whack job in the best possible way. Oh, like she's just amazing, <laughs> amazing. Talk um, to me, you mentioned David O. Russell, who you've of course worked on, uh, worked with before. You've collaborated again with him on this new film yeah. uh, that has another insane bananas cast. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know yeah, much this about movie, it. Like, if yeah. you weren't in this movie, your career is over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, between Adam McKay's new one, right? The one with yeah. like Leo and everybody. And yeah. this one, it casts all of Hollywood. So at least you made yeah. it, man. Um, <laughs> what, uh, so you say that this, one, this one's pretty comedic. I mean, do you click with David? David's obviously, again, talk about a guy on his own wavelength, like, a very unique yeah. personality to work with. Did you click with him immediately? Is it a different environment on this new one versus American Hustle? What can you say about working with David? Um, well, he's the only director who's ever cast me twice. What? Um, <laughs> That's crazy. 
Yeah, this is the, that's this is the first time that's ever happened. Wow. Um, I um, <clears throat> so you know, it, 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 working with him is just completely unlike any other experience. It's totally feels totally out of control. Um, you have to kind of give yourself over to him in a way that is really terrifying because um, you can't like, I mean, the way you prepare for his movies is all with character work. Right. So it's all, it's all about developing behavior and <clears throat> just being really specific about who you're playing and how they talk and how they are physically and <clears throat> if you really um, latch on to that in a very detailed way, then you just like filter through his dialogue. I mean, you don't ever say anything that's in the script. So, um, wow. and he's written the script and the scripts are always really excellent. But uh, what you say on the day comes out of like, he just, he, he tucks himself in next to the camera and has like a little monitor and, um, just starts like interacting with you during the takes while the camera's rolling and he becomes kind of part of the scene like you'll be in a scene with other people but he's he's taught he talks almost like I, I I liken it to like Glenn Gould I, I don't know if you've ever listened to Glenn Gould recordings he was a famous pianist classical sure. pianist who who famously recorded Bach um, you know the Brandenburg concertos or whatever and and he used to like sing the notes as he was playing them, right. like vocally out loud. And so if you listen to recordings of him, like you hear him going like, <laughs> right, right, right. whatever, like, and, uh, you know, David, like is, he's interacting with you uh, as he's kind of directing the scenes almost while the camera's rolling. So he's actually like yelling out dialogue for you to say. And you may repeat lines a whole bunch of times and he'll tell you to say something else. And then you say that and then another thing. And then you say that and then, and then he'll tell the other guy in your scene to say something and then he'll tell the camera where to go. And, and it becomes this kind of like psychedelic chaos, but it's an amazing feeling. You, I, I mean, I, you just kind of like give yourself over to being manipulated Right. by someone else and if you like are like if you have the character and you're comfortable enough in the character and you can say anything it doesn't matter you're still the guy it's like you just kind of let go and yeah. um and he's very funny so so the thing usually the stuff he's asking you to say are jokes you know or or you know funny things and um and you just say it like totally committed and it just is funny well, I, so, it, make, uh, it makes sense why like obviously so many actors are attracted to him because i mean like we all heard the stories and we know he's kind of can be like you know up and down in, in, in interesting ways yeah, but yeah. like that tightrope of like terrifying and invigorating for an actor is like unlike any other I can't think of another filmmaker that works that way. So that's. Yeah. I mean, it's really like, it's really by the end of the shoot, you feel just like exhausted by yeah. <clears throat> the uncertainty of everything, like of coming in every day and just like not knowing what you're going to say or what's going to happen. Or, you know, if the scene is going to just like blow up and be just some like completely different thing than what you anticipated and that something brilliant is going to be discovered and, some incredibly funny moment and it's just going to like be a memorable moment or something or if it's just going to like you know if you're not whatever like your role's presence in the scene is going to end up just being totally invisible like you just don't know right. on any given day and that, and that after like a, a couple months it's like it's it's intense and can you know you you need like a rest after um but i sure, yeah. but i i was very excited to be asked to work with him again because <clears throat> i mean i recently watched a, one of the scenes I, I very rarely have gone back and watched things that i've been in in the past but i somebody sent me on twitter or something some scene from american hustle with me and bradley and, and louis ck and i just watched it i just like i mean i i it just like it was so it was just so like unlike any other movie and 
it oh, was yeah. so funny and alive. Like it, it just, you just, it just felt alive. No, and, alive is the, is the word. There is a, a palpable yeah. energy to his work and it's, it's the movement of the camera, but it's also just like that, that ineffable kind of spontaneity that clearly yeah. comes from the process you're, you're talking yeah. about. And, yeah. and, and you're kind of shedding light on like what I've not been able to kind of put my finger on in his films over the years. And now I'm kind of starting to get it of like how that happens. So it's- Yeah, it's I mean, I, I don't know if maybe some of his other, and by the way, some people, it, it doesn't work for some people. You, do you know what I mean? Right. Like, right. and, and uh, you know, some people have had experiences with him that, uh, you know, haven't gone so well. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I've just, you know, my, I've had like fairly limited you know, I, I wasn't the lead in either of these movies and I, I, right. I, I was just coming and doing my bit, but I, um, I, I, I as a, just a purely on a creative level, I, I found it, I found it thrilling on both occasions. Well, we don't, we only have to wait like a year for that one. So we'll let I know, it's like every that. movie I do now, <laughs> it's like three years later. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. It's the patience of Job at this point. <laughs> Um, it, it just means we'll have another excuse to chat as, as and we'll also have to do we're going to do our our 10 hour face off podcast coming soon. Um, but in the <laughs> short term to the audience one more time, if you can't tell, I'm a big fan of this one, the many saints of Newark. Uh, if you're a Sopranos fan, obviously you're going to see this, you're going to want to see this. But like as somebody that like loved Sopranos, but was not like just like crazy invested, it just works on its own. And it's just like a really well told and amazing ensemble, I should mention too, beyond Alessandro, like everyone from Vera and Corey Stoll. Um, my God, Ray Liotta, I don't want to reveal too much, but the scenes between you and Ray are electric and amazing. Um, yeah, so... I've got some stories there too, um, for, our next, <laughs> for our next chat. Okay, fair enough, fair but enough. That was, a, that was a thrilling experience. Um, I, I, Ray, is, Ray is something else, he's amazing. Yeah, no, he's amazing in the film, truly. Uh, congratulations, man, on this. Uh, I hope you get a breather from both David O. Russell and the publicity train to um, enjoy the moment. It's uh, long overdue to, to have this moment. So congratulations, man, and uh, thanks for the time. Thanks, Josh. It's good to, good to connect. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>